Beautiful to, to hear the people of God singing him praises. He's worthy of our praise. Um, I'd like to start out this morning by saying thank you for a couple things. Uh, number one, uh, this last month, as every year, you guys spoiled our family beyond measure. Um, thank you for your kindness to us. It is a joy to serve among you, and, and that's, that's really all we are. We're just servants like you are, and uh, it's our, our privilege to come along and, and serve in the role of preaching God's Word and, and shepherding God's people, but we're, we're servants of the King that we worship. And uh, every year you, um, you show your appreciation in different ways for the work we do, and uh, I, I can't express my appreciation for the work that you do in, in enough words. Uh, but thank you for your kindness and um, just for loving us. And uh, thank you for bringing me joy. I, I, know, I think the elders of our church can, can echo that same thing. Thank you for bringing us joy as, as you serve our Lord and you, you serve one another and come alongside one another. Uh, just to love our Savior and to love each other. Um, that uh, is a beautiful thing to see God's work in your life. I'd also like to say thank you for your prayers this last week. We've been asking you to pray for our men. Uh, we went to a seminar uh, a workshop called the Simeon Trust Workshop. I'm going to have a couple of the guys come share in a couple of weeks a little bit more about that and some of the other things that we, we have going on in our men's ministry. But um, this week we had 10 guys go over to Des Moines and I, I hooked their uh, mouths to a fire hydrant with a rubber band and we turned it on full throttle and they did homework and lots of homework and then we put them in front of people and they had to share their sermon prep and uh, I, I'm really proud of the work that each of these men did. And uh, thankful just to see God doing that work in them and uh, to see the light coming on uh, in my own life and in others as we see just principles of handling God's word. And so what a, what a joy to participate in that. Uh, but I know that you are participating with us in that as you were praying for us. Um, one of those prayers was for really good coffee, I think, because we found an awesome place, right, Kurt? Yeah. <laughs> kept us going all day because the hotel did not have it. <laughs> it was a great hotel. Uh, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Uh, let's thank Him for His Word and ask that He would bless our time as we turn to Him. Father, we have turned to You in praise over this hour. We've turned our prayers and our gaze towards Your throne. We've declared Your worth because You are worthy. And so we worship You. Might the prayers of our lips, the uh, praises that have overflowed out of our hearts, the songs that we sing, the words that we've uttered, even in the encouragement that we give to one another and the fellowship that we enjoy is a part of that praise. I, I pray that all of that would be pleasing to you and as we continue this service, that you would teach us from your word. I, I pray that you would um, open our ears so that we would have ears to hear. I pray that you would, would um, enlighten our minds uh, so that uh, our brains and our, our minds and our, our thoughts would engage with your thoughts. And, and I pray that you would soften our hearts so that we would be changed by the things that we hear and understand. And might it be put into practice in a way in our lives that would bring you honor and glory, that would indicate the filling of the Holy Spirit in each one of us and would bring praise and to you and delight to you. Please use your word, we pray now. Amen. 
Well, we are continuing on a journey through the story of the Bible. Uh, if you're here for the first time with us, uh, we're on a 31-week journey from Genesis to Revelation. And so far, we have taken a helicopter view. Uh, we've kind of gotten over the forest, so rather than take a paths, individual paths through the trees and, and see some of the flora and the fauna in between, we're, we're in this helicopter hovering over the whole thing and getting an overview of how everything fits together. And so far, we've taken a helicopter view over the first six books of the Old Testament. We've journeyed from creation to Abraham. We've traveled to Egypt and back out again to Mount Sinai, wandering through the wilderness and crossed the Jordan River with Joshua and the Israelites. That brings us to the next period of Israel's history for which there is a whole book of the Bible named Judges. Now, the period of the Judges lasted... Uh, it lasted from the death of Joshua all the way to the life and the ministry of a man named Samuel. There's a couple books named after him as well. He was the last of the judges. And this period lasted for about 350 years from, from Joshua's leadership all the way to the leadership of their first king, King Saul. Uh, so really, this is a large chunk of Israel's history. As you're reading through the Bible, uh, there are some portions that fit over you know, 40 years, and you have books that are devoted to that, that 40-year period, like Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, you have uh, lots of books that cover many years and the reigns of different, many different people, but in Judges, we have this one period that characterizes this, this one period of Israel's history that's squeezed into this one book and in the book of Ruth where we get a kind of a cross-section of some of the lives of some of the people during that time. And here's the approach that we're going to take this morning. Uh, we, are, we are going to continue our helicopter overview by briefly looking at chapters 1 and 2 where the book of Judges is actually going to take us on a helicopter ride itself. Uh, it's going to give us a nice flyover of the whole book and how everything's put together. And then we're going to take a couple examples of a couple of these judges. But then I'd like for us to spend the bulk of our time this morning down on the ground where we're going to walk back through the trees a little bit. We've been up in the helicopter for, for several weeks now. Uh, we're going we're gonna to land the plane, land the, the chopper, and we're going to come down and we're going to actually walk through Judges chapter 16. And there we're going to give the, the helicopter a rest and walk through a passage where God records the death of the final judge that appears in the book of Judges. The book of Judges begins immediately after the death of Joshua, and the Israelites are engaged in the process of finishing the task that Joshua started. In fact, the Bible starts, the, the book of Judges starts with those words that after Joshua died, it's an ominous uh, sign of what's to come. And it starts well, though. Uh, right away, though, there's this problem that they run into. And they ask, you know, who's going to go first to conquer the land and finish the job that Joshua started with us? And so God first sends the tribe of Judah. And he promises them that he is going to be with them. He promises them that, they, that he has given the wicked Canaanites into their hand. They go. And, and they do well. Uh, they, they enjoy victory after victory after victory until they notice something, that once they get down to the plains after they've conquered the hill country, they're outmatched by the inhabitants of the plains who have iron chariots. Even though God had promised them in Joshua and in other places that, uh, that they would drive out the Canaanites, even if they had chariots of iron. And so this is where the book of Judges begins its downward spiral. 
The tribe of Judah obeys God, but it's an incomplete obedience. Judah's failure to lead is followed by an account of each of the other tribes and how they failed to obey what God called them to do. To the point that you get to the tribe of Dan and they don't even go into the land at all. They don't take any of their inheritance. They have to go by the end of the book and find their inheritance somewhere else. Steal it from another tribe, another people. And then partial obedience turns into doing what is evil and abandoning Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt. In Judges chapter 2, verse 12, God tells us they, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm as Yahweh had warned and as Yahweh had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And this is the start of what has come to be called uh, the cycle of the judges. You'll hear that referred to in commentaries and in circles where, where uh, people are talking about the book of Judges. Uh, we see this cycle repeat itself over and over and over through the entire book. It starts with Israel in time of obedience. And then we read that Israel sins and they go after other gods. So the Lord gives them over to their enemies in judgment. And this, of course, leads to years of distress. Sometimes distress that lasts for decades. And the people cry out to Yahweh. Do you think the Lord listens? Yeah. He shows mercy. In spite of all of their disobedience, in spite of them going after the gods of the people that they have replaced in the land that God had already judged, people who themselves said, we deserved this. We were evil. We were horrible. One of the kings said, this is exactly what I did to others, and, and I had it coming to me. And we're told that they do Oh, this over and over and over. God shows mercy, but the cycle continues. The Lord raises up judges. Uh, these are men like Gideon and Jephthah and women like Deborah. Now, now understand, when you hear the word judge, what do you think of? Law. Guy with a gavel. Wearing a black robe. That's kind of the image that we have of judges. Uh, and they, the judges in Israel did, similar, did, uh, did function in a similar fashion where they would rule over the people and they would act as a civic leader. Uh, but, and sometimes they would make these, decide, decide on cases between people. For example, look at Judges chapter 4, verse 4. Keep your finger in Judges 2. Um, but we're told about Deborah. Uh, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So all of these judges did act in that way and, uh, uh, and they served as civic leaders. But they were much more than that. And within the context of the book of Judges, what we see them doing more than anything else is delivering the Israelites out of the hands of their enemies. They were not only civic leaders, but they were military leaders. Uh, even Deborah led uh, the people against, um, against another king that was invading. 
And so God showed mercy to Israel by raising these judges, and the book tells us the story of 12 of them. And they delivered Israel. However, that's not where the cycle ends, because a cycle does something, doesn't it? It repeats itself over and over and over again. And this is the tragedy that we discover in the book of Judges. God delivered Israel, and they experienced a period of rest, but then something happens all 12 times, and many more times than that. The judge dies. Every time. In fact, sometimes that's the only failure that you see with a couple of the judges who died. But it was a short, it it was a a failing that um, he couldn't help. He wasn't the leader that Israel needed. The book starts with Joshua dying. God raised up these deliverers, but then they die, and the cycle starts all over, and the people fall into sin. Listen as we continue the summary given in chapter 2, starting in verse 16. It says, Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, so really, what we find in Judges is not actually a cycle of Judges, but it's more of a downward spiral that starts with partial obedience and ends up in chaos. Chapter 3, verse 11 ends the brief account of the only judge whose moral failings are not recorded. And we're told, so the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. In chapter 4, verse 1, we're told about the end of the rule of the third judge. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. In chapter 5, the land had rest for 40 years under Deborah. And then the people did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And so it continues and continues until 12 judges have come and died and the downward spiral plummets into absolute chaos. And then we find in chapter 17 through 21, after the account of all these judges, it continues the story of what happens in times without leadership. And the book closes with these words. Just turn over to the very end of the book. Don't get into Ruth because that gets happier a little bit. We don't want to go there, right? Wouldn't want to ruin the story. End of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. It ends with these words, and this is the summary of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, right? No. You got it, Junior. No. There's a reason why they plummeted into this chaos, isn't there? It sounds like the period of history, though, that we're going through today, doesn't it? Isn't that an accurate description of the world that we live in? All around the world, we see failed leadership. 
in our own country, failed leadership. It doesn't matter what party's in charge. Everyone is still doing what is right in their own eyes. And then we wonder why things are going wrong. We read in the newspaper about school shootings, another riot, another child murdered and kidnapped, another scandalized leader. And people say the same thing that was said in Judges chapter 19. How could this happen in Israel? How could this happen in Iowa? In fact, if you read through Judges this week, you might have even found yourself sick to your stomach as you read those last few chapters. Violence, gang rape, dismemberment. That's in the Bible? That, that, why, why? Why? That's sick. It's disgusting. Maybe you found yourself in tears as you read the account of these horrible sins. Why would God's Word record such horrible evils? But this is the message of Judges. That's the message of what happens when people are left longing for a righteous king and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Partial obedience soon becomes putting God out of our lives, which becomes outright evil, and then it spirals downward into this outright malevolent chaos. Message of Judges should be a wake-up call to us, though, shouldn't it? We should read Judges and ask ourselves, is this going on here? Is this a reflection of my heart in any way? And as sinners in need of repentance, sinners in need of constant confession, we should see that, yeah, it's there. I, I fail. I struggle. There are times I'm not living by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and there needs to be change in me. And so you look around, you look at your life, you look at your kids. It's not so bad. At least my kids aren't doing that. We homeschool. You look at the practices that you commit at work. Not so bad. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. He deserved what he got. We look at our neighbors and then ourselves. Not so bad. At least no one hears our family when we fight. Judges shows up in our lives. And it should wake us up. Because when we are content to do what is right in our own eyes, partial obedience becomes our children pushing God out of their lives, which becomes evil, and then this downward spiral of our grandchildren all, and it all points back to each one of us saying, not so bad. And so that's the picture of Judges. We're going to land the helicopter. We're going to take a look at the death of the last judge that's accounted for us here in the text in chapter 16. And so I've, I've moved this morning's scripture reading around a little bit, and I asked Angie to wait, and, and if she would come forward now, and if you would read, here, I'll put this right down here. If you would read uh, Judges 16, if you would turn there with us, verses 23 through 31. Or, yeah. yeah. Now, the 
Pharisees gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hands, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars of which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshbel in the tomb of Manoah, his father, who had judged Israel from Egypt. Please be seated. Part of the downward spiral in Judges is that even though the judges conquered their enemies, each one of these judges was less and less able or willing to conquer their own flesh. Gideon was ensnared by corrupted worship. Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter because of his own pride. And Samson Samson is set up to be the greatest of all the judges. He's set apart from birth. His parents are visited by the angel of the Lord. The text tells us that Yahweh blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Multiple times it tells us of the Spirit rushing upon him. But then almost as soon as it all begins, Samson, we're told, takes notice of one of the Philistine women. The daughter of the enemy. It's hard to be a judge delivering people from the hand of the Philistines when you're seeking to marry one of the Philistines. And in essence, he says, she's hot. He goes to his father and he says, I, I want that. In the words of the text, it says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. The wedding explodes in Samson's face. His own bride betrays him. He slaughters several men from another city to pay up the price of a bet that he made. The, the bride is given to his best man. And then later on, she is burned alive with her father-in-law by her own people. And by the end of all of it, Samson has violated every stipulation of his calling as a Nazarite. You can read about that in the text. But he violates every stipulation that God had given to him at birth. And then toward the end of his 20 years as Israel's judge, we read in chapter 16 that he went to Gaza. That's another Philistine city on the coast. 
And it says there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. And so Samson, the most famous of Israel's judges who defeated the Philistines time after time after time again, the Hercules of Israel, a one-man army, the hero of the nation. Samson was unable to conquer his own flesh, let alone deliver the people and lead them in doing what was right in the Lord's eyes. We're told that Samson loved another woman. Her name was Delilah. She's different from the other two women before in the account. By the end of it all, she also has betrayed him. She sells him for 1,100 pieces of silver. And she sells him for a price into the Lord of the, to the lords of the Philistines. They shave his head. That was one of the stipulations of being a Nazarite. He wasn't to allow a razor to touch his head. But he does. His head is shaved. His strength left him. More tragically, chapter 16, verse 20, tells us that Yahweh left him. And so the Philistines seized Samson. They blind him. They shackle him. And they throw him into a prison, which is in the mill where he crushes grain, apparently. Verse 22 foreshadows that God still has intentions for Samson, however. And the narrator, the narrator whispers to us, but the hair of his head the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And so as you're reading through the story, you're, you're longing, what's, what's going to happen next? Is there going to be some, tread, some, great, some great ending here? Is there going to be a turnaround? Are his eyes going to grow back too? What's going to happen? I remember as a child, I remember as a child experiencing the knowledge that I was getting bigger taller sometimes too fast too quick uh watching those notches on the the doorways your mom measured your height and you see how many inches you grew stronger and at seven i had more muscle than that puny little kindergartner that had 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 two years before and you see when i was five i remembered that my father would ball his hand in a fist and i would try to Pry his fingers open. You ever done that with your dad? Try to just, and I couldn't do it. And so two years, uh, so the the, the uh, <clears throat> two years later, two years older, I, I challenged him again. By the time I was nine or so, I, I was able to do it, and I was able to pry that pinky open. Victory. It was short lived because then my my hand was trapped under the pinky, really quickly. Not so much a victory. You see, flexing the arm, uh, it, it was an ancient symbol of strength. It still is, isn't it? Pharaoh used the flexed arm to symbolize the strength, his strength in hieroglyphs. Uh, Babylonian kings would picture themselves and, and etch into the stone on cliff walls an image of them flexing their arm as they held a lion in a, in a headlock. Uh, these were images that, that uh, displayed strength of power. It was power that Samson once knew. Once he, he actually lifted the door of the city gates right off of its posts, ripped it out, carried it 38 miles up an elevation of 3,000 feet. That's a journey. Samson once knew 
but now it was the enemy that was flexing his arms. Listen to their boast. Twice the Philistines rejoiced. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. The second time they label him the ravager of our people. That just sounds vicious, doesn't it? And so they call a party. There's drinking, there's festivity. Dagon was no doubt on display, their God holding his outstretched hands. Putting his hands over them in a position of blessing, providing fertility to their crops. Uh, Dagon was a fish god, a, a merman. He had the body of a man and the face of a man and uh, the, uh, the tail of a fish. In their mythology, Dagon was considered to be the father of Baal. You read about that throughout Judges. And, uh, and he would bless their crops and he would make their ground fertile. And now with his hands outstretched in blessing, Samson would no longer burn their fields. And so they worshiped Dagon and they praised, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands, the ravager of our country. And so Samson suffered the bitterness of defeat. And Samson experienced the loss that's felt when the enemy flexes its arms. But a lifetime of partial obedience a rule that's tainted by sin and unrestrained, surren- unrestrained surrender to the flesh also brought the hero of Israel to the moment where sin's grip had finally pinned him down. It demanded its price. At age 10 or 11, I decided to try my hand again with my father. Only this time, we were going to arm wrestle. <laughs> You're laughing, Penny. too true too true everybody else laughed in their hearts it's okay you imagine my amazement at my father's arm though i I was holding him down and and it began to waver i I was actually winning you know 10 more inches and i will prove i'm a man eight more inches and i and I, i i think he's beginning to worry a little bit six inches i mean sure he's letting me use both arms but I'm actually going to win this thing. Nope. (laughs) One sweeping motion, I was pinned down. So the people, they're intoxicated, both with wine and their own revelry and their own pride. They call for Samson so that he can come out and entertain us. Who knows what that meant. It's a mercy that the writer doesn't recount how they probably humiliated him. But they put his defeat on full display. There, there he was in the center of their temple. And we're told that he was put between two pillars. Uh, that would have been right in the center uh, of the temple. In fact, we're told, I think, that it was in the center of the temple. And we've actually dug up a, an ancient Philistine temple in, in another one of the cities, over by Tel Aviv. Uh, there's a Philistine temple that we've unearthed. Uh, so this isn't the one in the text in Gaza. But archaeologists have actually uncovered uh, the ancient floor. And you can actually see the, the remnants of those pillars I don't know about you, but when I read this account, I think like the Abraham Lincoln Memorial, right? You know, how, is he, how does that work? You know, jumping 30 feet? or uh, no, the, In their temples, the, the, uh, the entire temple was, uh, was arranged around these two pillars. And, and the roof would sit on that. And, and it, would, it was the central support that kept everything else stable. And so with all the people on the roof, there was probably already um, 
straining of, of the pillars, uh, but they did their job. Uh, and so these pillars stood almost six feet apart, and Samson would have been placed between them to entertain. And at some point, Samson turned to the lad who was leading him. The text tells us that he was held by the hand. We see the hand mentioned a lot in this passage, don't we? This symbol of strength. And now Samson's being led by the hand. Not much of a strong hero anymore, is he? Blinded. Shaved with hair growing in again. Shackled and led by a servant. Perhaps even an an adolescent boy. Samson knew defeat and sin's grip more than anyone else that had pinned him down. But I want us to also notice that when in verses 26 through 30, that when the enemies, even though the enemies had flexed the arm that dished out the bitterness of defeat, that this wasn't the end. And when sin pins down God's people and they stumble, this too is not the end. Listen to the, the main point that the author is arguing to his audience and, and then watch how he unravels this. Here's the gist of this whole passage. Through Samson's death, the author of Judges shows us that the Lord's deliverance comes at the hand of His strength as He empowers His servant. Notice Samson feeling with his hands the pillars to his side. And in verse 28, the author of Judges reveals that Samson's, Samson doing something that we've only seen him do one other time in all these chapters. One time in all the account of Samson, he prays. The leader of Israel prays. It's a rather pathetic prayer. It's self-centered. It's about him. But he calls out to Yahweh, his Lord. It's a prayer. And I don't want you to get the idea that, that this prayer contains a cry that you should emulate. I was actually looking through some works and somebody said, oh, I pray the prayer of Samson all the time. <laughs> what? I mean, there are parts, granted, you know, that show his faith, and there are parts, you know, Lord grant me strength. That's great. Go for that. That's stop there though. Um you know, perhaps there was other prayers that he prayed in prison. But he might have prayed, Lord, glorify yourself. Lord, please defend your honor. Or perhaps, Lord, my sin is great. Please grant me strength to serve You again. But here, his prayer is not one that I believe we should imitate. He said, oh, Yahweh, my Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God. Sounds good so far, right? But look at the reason he wants the strength. Look at his purpose that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. I know he was hurting, and I can't imagine what he felt during these days. But still, it's about him, isn't it? There's a second prayer was uttered by Samson as he grasped the pillars with his hands and pressed against them. Let me die with the Philistines. So again, don't get me wrong. Samson's prayed, and and I want you to understand, and we're going to come back to this in a few moments because this isn't important. This is a demonstration of his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 includes Samson in that great hall of faith with many others. He served the Lord. 
He served the Lord in His death. And God was glorified in His death. And Hebrews 11 makes it clear by including Samson in the Hall of Faith that Samson was a believer. Samson believed God and his prayers demonstrate faith. But I believe that Samson's death is the tragic end of what the text shows us to be a tragic life. So praise God that Samson turns to the Lord for his strength in the end. Praise God that God in His grace extended His mighty hand to empower Samson, one of His servants. And praise God that in spite of all of Samson's failures as a man and as a leader, the Lord still brought about a great deliverance for Israel. God did all of those things. And He used Samson. However, embedded within the story of Samson's death, the book of Judges pulls us deeper still. There's deliverance in this final scene of Samson's story, but this is not the victory that the book of Judges is leading us to long for. You don't come to the end of Samson's death and go, yes! The victory is not there. It's a tragedy. But I want you to understand that that this is not the victory that the book of Judges is leading us to long for. In fact, Samson's death, it's a prolonged dirge that moans the loss of another leader yet again. His funeral, it's it's prolonged in that last verse. It's the last echo reminding us of chapter 1, verse 1, that Joshua died. Othniel died. Ehud died. Gideon died. Now Samson has died, and like all of the others, he's been buried in a tomb. And when the judges died, the downward spiral, the cycle continued, and the people would fall back into that downward spiral of chaos once again. And my friends, that's where the story of Judges leads us. This is where the upper story meets the lower story, though. We've been talking about God's story as He works in man's story. And as you read through the book of Judges, you piece all these together and think, what's God doing here? What's the purpose of it all? Because because from our perspective, it seems like the spiral of death's defeat will always return. You ever feel that way? Judges reminds us that when people are left longing for a righteous king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes, partial obedience soon becomes pushing God out of our lives, which soon turns into evil and it spirals downward into outright malevolent chaos. And the author of Judges showed his audience what it looked like when there was no king in Israel. Ultimately, they would have a king. David and Solomon some of the greatest kings of the greatest time of their united monarchy, they also would fail to fulfill the hopes of Israel because as much as these were an improvement on the book of Judges, and I think we can all agree they were, right? Not that they didn't fail. They had some doozies. It was an improvement over the days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, but they also would fall short of the righteousness that the people needed in a king. And they also would die. 
and their bodies would remain in the tombs of their fathers. Samson's life is a tragic portrait of one who was unable to conquer his own fleshly desires. Deliverance came by the strong hand of the Lord who empowered His servant Samson. But thanks be to God, because I want you to see as you look at the life and the death of Samson, and I want you to note that there is another servant who came. There is another servant who was set apart at his birth. Whose parents were visited by angels. And the text tells us that the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon Him. And His name was called Jesus. This servant would live by the power of the Spirit rather than be conquered by the lusts of his flesh. And this servant would also die like Samson, but in doing so, this one, the righteous one, would destroy our great enemy, sin, along with its plummeting spiral. And in his death, He accomplished the deliverance of the nations, even the salvation of the nations who once were enemies with Israel. And then in His resurrection, He accomplished victory over death itself. In the resurrection, He has empowered His people so that they, so that you, can live victoriously over the flesh. And dear saints, our deliverance must come by the hand of our Lord and our service must be empowered by His Spirit as we follow the servant. And I realize that there are some of you here that you are still pinned down by the sin's dark grip and your enemy, the devil, is flexing his arm over you. You are still trying to to find victory over sin and you are not finding it because you do not know His Son. You're still in His grasp. You are still in need of this deliverance. And I want you to know that your deliverance from sin, it will never come at your own hand. God will not save you because you've proved yourself. God will not save you because of your own strength or because you've established your worth in His eyes. But He will deliver you from the power of sin when you cry out to Him for mercy. And the One who conquered sin by His death and conquered death by His resurrection, the One who conquered sin by His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave will save you when you turn to Him for Him to do what you cannot do. When you believe on God's Son, Jesus Christ, He will save you from sin's grip. Christian, you also must never forget that your sanctification, your walk with Jesus Christ, is never empowered by your own fleshly efforts. You can be as strong as Samson, as rich as Solomon, but your victory over your fleshly lusts will never be accomplished by the power of your hand. And the accomplishments of the great commission that we've been commanded to achieve will never be achieved when we flex our strength. All of these will come by the empowering of His Spirit and the power of His mighty hand as He leads us by the hand. 
And yes, Samson is a reminder to us of the consequences of what happens when a person fails to live by the power that God has made available to him. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that Samson also was saved by faith. We will spend eternity with this man, I believe. He was a man of faith. And even though his prayers sound tragic and his life ended in tragedy, Samson is a reminder to us that God is always delighted when His people cry out and when our hand is strengthened by the power of His might. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your deliverance. We thank You for the life of Samson and the account even of his death and the lessons that You have to teach us here. We thank You that You have shown us what is not the way. You've showed us the tragedy of those who have lived by their own power. And the incredible treasure that we now possess as children of God, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and conquered death, We thank You for Your true servant, the righteous One, Jesus Christ, who came and lived among us and accomplished what none of these judges were able to do. He was the true righteous King that they longed for. The One who conquered death and has given us the victory. His victory. How we live by the power that You've given through Him as we overcome sin, as we follow Him. Father, I pray for my friends here that might not have come into a relationship with You already. Father, it's my prayer that they would put their trust in Jesus Christ even in these moments as we bow our heads. Might their faith be turned away from their own strength and their own efforts and turn to Jesus Christ who accomplished the victory already and died on that cross for their sins. Grant your mercy to them. Grant them faith. And I pray that you pour out your grace on each one. Amen.